Late last year, a piece of Miami history was nearly wiped off the map. It's a century old now, built in 1922 on Palm Island near Miami Beach. It had survived a hurricane in 1926 despite being situated right next to a canal. Over the years, it had swapped hands between owners and changed its construction and design. It's 6,000 square feet, compiled of 14 rooms, and suited with an unusual array of security structures, including searchlights and a massive wall. But the ground beneath the surface began doing what so much land beneath Miami's surface has been doing. It's sinking. The owner, as of last fall, said that the building had begun to sink, about three feet below sea level now. Said owner had decided that, with time taking its toll on this old waterside building, it was time for it to be demolished. But Miami residents were not happy with this outcome. The building was purchased from the man who sought to destroy it. The group who now owns it, quote, plans to keep the home intact, end quote. It's a win for history lovers, as this home was not just any other unusual century-old mansion in Miami Beach. This home was, in fact, the Florida residence of Alphonse Gabriel Capone, known worldwide as America's most infamous gangster, Al Capone. It's here in the comfortable residence along Miami's canal that Capone likely was 93 years ago today, when seven men were gunned down at 10.30 in the morning in Chicago, Illinois. The murders rocked the world as Prohibition-era violence was reaching new heights, all while Al Capone enjoyed the scenic vistas of Florida's famous Miami Beach in the home he would one day die in. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. Today is the 93rd anniversary of the infamous Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago, an event that has many ties to the state of Florida. So for today's episode, we're breaking down the events that led up to the massacre, Capone's connections to the Sunshine State, and the repercussions that still mark Florida's history a century later. I want to say a few things before we get into the episode proper. The first is that one of my main resources for this episode was a book called Get Capone by author Jonathan Eig. It is a fantastic read about Capone's life, about his work, and how he was eventually captured. If you want to learn more about Capone, that is a fantastic book to read, Get Capone. It is a great read for a lot of this research. And the other bit of business, fair warning, this episode will include discussion of mob violence to a certain degree. So if that is too much for you to handle, I totally understand. Come back next week, we'll be discussing the luminous Zora Neale Hurston. But for now, we're talking Al Capone, and we need to head back one century to get to know the man. You know his name, but precisely who was Al Capone? So, uh, so Al Capone was a, a very high-profile mobster, uh, mob boss in Chicago in the 1920s. And it's interesting that he has become such an iconic figure uh, because he really was only in, in, in charge of the Chicago outfit for about six years. That is my guest this week, Jeff Schumacher. My name is Jeff Schumacher. I am the vice president of exhibits and programs at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. You heard that right. Las Vegas. We've gone transcontinental. <laughs> Jeff was a journalist for many years until becoming a history writer and has been at the Mob Museum for eight years. The Mob Museum is 10 years old uh, this month in February, 
And it is, uh, you know, uh, we tell the story of organized crime from the, the 19th century to the current day. Uh, we are a, a nationally accredited museum, very serious minded about what our, our work, but it's also a, uh, a fun, fun experience to come to the museum. These, these stories are just so vivid, they're, they're action packed. And uh, we, we try to tell them as accurately as we can, but we find that uh, people are just engrossed with, you know, the, the, the aspects of these stories that, uh, that really get their blood pumping. And it's, a, it's not a museum that puts you to sleep, that's for sure. So, as Jeff was saying, Capone was a unique character in this era of mobsters in the 1920s. Lots of them had personalities, interesting quirks about them. They had great names. Lucky Luciano comes to mind. But Al Capone was a very public-facing figure. That was an intentional decision on his part. And But so much drama occurred during this time. And, and Capone was so much in the news at the time. He was one of those those mobsters who held press conferences. I mean, that doesn't happen too often, you know. It, the wiser mobsters keep a low profile and try not to draw attention to themselves. In Capone's case, he was a public figure in Chicago and actually nationally at the time, and he held, literally held press conferences. He did interviews with the press. Uh, he uh, became very well known and, of course, very notorious for, you know, the violence and other uh, you know, criminal activities that he and his, his partners were involved in. Um, so really from 1925 to 1931, uh, Al Capone was uh, the most famous criminal in America. And he was um, defiant, really, about the whole idea of prohibition. You know, he would come out and say, I, I sell liquor for a living. You know, I, I produce and sell liquor for a living. And in Chicago, you could get away with that at the time because you know the enforcement was was uh, either corrupt or incompetent, and uh, so so Capone became very famous from that uh, and very infamous. Before we dig really deep into how that infamy came to be, let's talk about his origins. He grew up in a world that so many mobsters of the 1920s began in, as the son of European immigrants. He was the son of Italian immigrants, to be specific, born Alphonse Capone in 1899. Growing up in Brooklyn, Capone worked odd jobs throughout his neighborhood to make chunk change until eventually finding himself as a petty criminal with a crew of other street kids from his neighborhood. By the time he was 16 years old, Al had taken up with a gang in New York called the Five Points. As was often the case in this era of American history, this gang was made up of European immigrants or the children of European immigrants who were living in impoverished conditions in urban centers who were just hoping to make a life for themselves, hoping to make some extra money to live a life that wasn't totally impoverished, and that meant committing crimes by any means necessary. In the case of the Five Points, its members were mostly Irish and Italian. They were raising hell through New York for the latter part of the 1800s and into the early decades of the the 1900s. Al actually got the nickname Scarface after he was cut across the face as a member of the Five Points. Now, I know that Scarface, that name, has a specific connection to Florida as well because of the Al Pacino movie Scarface, which was filmed and set in Miami, but that movie is not about Al Capone. I know that's weird. It just isn't. It just shares the name. It's, it's a reference. Anyway, Al was already a violent criminal at this point, having beaten and killed various members of rival gangs in New York. He moved away from New York to Chicago as 1920 approached, and the Five Points gang folded soon after their era had gone. 
the turn of the century mobsters were coming to an end. There was a new type of mobster on the rise, and it was no longer about fighting to survive in impoverished urban centers. A sea change was occurring at the federal level that would shake up American culture for the ensuing decade, and in fact, really forever. At the beginning of 1919, the Volstead Act was passed, and it brought in new regulations and laws that went into effect the following January. So, as of January 17, 1920, the Volstead Act went about, quote, banning alcohol beverages as well as their production and distribution, end quote. So, the Volstead Act was the beginning of prohibition. Prohibition meant that making and selling liquor was now a criminal enterprise, one that would go on to pay big dividends for those who were willing to risk their neck to produce and sell said alcohol. There was a man named Johnny Torrio. He had risen the ranks at the same time as Al Capone, though he was a decade older than him. Torrio moved to Chicago before Al Capone and had made a name for himself in the criminal enterprises. Torrio worked for another big-name mobster who was mysteriously assassinated in 1919. Historians speculate whether it was Al or a friend of his named Frankie Yale who did the deed. One of them did, but, but what you need to know is that Johnny Torrio was the boss now as 1920 approached, and Al was one of his lieutenants, along with Al's friend Frankie Yale, who we'll talk about later. Torrio ran brothels, gambling dens, and most importantly, bootlegging operations, making him a veritable titan of the Chicago underworld. Liquor was a huge part of their business. He had uh, he had breweries and distilleries uh, that, that he was in charge of, that he owned. He was distributing liquor. He had speakeasies, so he had nightclubs and, and different kinds. He, he encouraged a lot of live music and paid well. So you had jazz and blues musicians coming through town, including many African-Americans who, who would make more money performing in an Al Capone speakeasy than they could anywhere else. So, you know, there's a lot of facets to, to Capone, but certainly illegal gambling was a huge racket for him. Uh, prostitution was a big racket for him. Uh, bootlegging was the biggest of the bunch, millions and millions and millions of dollars making, uh, making beer, making liquor, distributing it, importing it from Canada, uh, and, and then selling it in speakeasies and, and other places. So even beyond that, Capone's outfit was involved in labor racketeering, and they got involved in uh, you know, dog racing. <laughs> uh, they had all kinds of things they were, they were involved in, anything that could, where they could make some money. They ruled with an iron fist, Capone and his peers literally getting away with murder by intimidating prosecutors and mowing down rival mobsters. In 1925, Johnny Torrio was nearly killed as retribution for another leader's death by Capone's hands, I will say, and this led to Torrio being captured and spending a few months in jail. With Torrio out of the picture, someone needed to rule Chicago, so the young Al Capone stepped up. I'll remind you, he is my age at this point. He's 26 when Johnny Torrio goes to jail. That is unbelievable to <laughs> even process. Anyway, when Torrio finally got out of jail, he, he had had enough. He, he decided to move to Italy, which meant that Al Capone got to keep the gig. He was in charge now. He had basically inherited a network of crime, illegal businesses that turned huge profits, and he had the exact power needed to control this entire system. It would all just bend to his will. He had that personality. But now, with Capone at the top, when violence needed to be done, it wasn't Capone himself pulling the trigger. But for more often than not, Capone would leave the planning of these events to his, his lieutenants 
uh, Frank Nitto, uh, who is also known as Frank Nitty, uh, was a, a sort of a mastermind of a lot of these uh, these hits on Rivals. Uh, Jack McGurn, known as Jack Machine Gun McGurn, uh, was a uh, a very uh, tough customer, and he he killed a lot of people for Capone. And then when you get to the uh, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, he brings in a whole new set of, of guys to, uh, to participate in that. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre was the event that eventually led to Al Capone's demise, but hold that thought. We need to leave the windy streets of Chicago first and head south to the Sunshine State. In Florida, Prohibition had been leaving its own marks. We've talked about it on the show in the past, but thanks to the extensive waterways that crisscrossed the state and along our coasts, the ocean being all around us, it just made it possible for Floridians to use boats to successfully transport liquor around the state, especially from the islands to our south, like the Bahamas. Floridian rum runners started making big money through illegal practices as they snuck along Florida's aquatic thoroughfares, dodged law enforcement, and constructed boats to successfully smuggle in their product. They would have false bottoms and hidden compartments, ways for them to keep the liquor hidden. The United States Coast Guard did their best to hunt them down and apprehend the rum runners, but they found little success. To make matters worse for those who were trying to uphold the laws of prohibition, many governmental figures allowed rum running to occur, quote unquote, looking the other way. It was good for their business because rum running brought a lot of money in the state as tourists came to Florida knowing that they could probably get alcohol at a speakeasy. There was a lot of liquor running through Florida. Rum running was just good business. Al Capone certainly knew this to be true. He had made a, a huge name for himself through rum running and bootlegging, though not down here in Florida. Nearly a decade after the passing of the Volstead Act, Al Capone had risen to a place of national importance, a crime figure like no one had seen before. Gambling and brothels were certainly a large revenue stream, but producing and selling alcohol was the core factor. But Al Capone was still a person, and he had made enough money as the crime lord of Chicago that he could afford a vacation home. Florida was naturally the finest place for it. Everyone was vacationing in Florida, and he picked a perfect time to buy a home. You see, the first major Florida land boom was beginning to wind down by the time Al was looking for real estate, but the state was still seeing the repercussions of the impact from that boom. So in the early parts of the 1920s, land was being bought and sold in Miami at a rapid pace, making loads of cash for real estate agents and land developers. And, and this was all after the Great Freeze that we discussed last week. That was a huge downturn in the economy, but when the real estate boom happened, that was a big upswing, kind of the first major upswing for the entire state post the Great Freeze. This was a huge moment of prosperity, but it came at a cost. The money eventually bottomed out. Some people buying land, quote, had been duped by con artists into buying worthless and even non-existent parcels, end quote. Sprinkle in the fact that hurricanes had been hitting in rapid succession as if a sign from the universe that this <laughs> was doomed to end, the boom crashed. Land was left vacant, development was halted, money was lost. Before the Great Depression even began, an economic slump began in Florida, which is right around when Al Capone came to our shores. It was 1928. Yeah, you know, it, during Capone's reign in Chicago, uh, he had a lot of rivals. You know, there's a lot of money to be made in bootlegging. 
at the time. And Capone made a lot of it, but other people uh, had their territories as well. And so Capone was constantly battling with uh, these rival bootleggers and no one more so than the guys who ran the Northside gang. And the Northside gang was, it's often described as like an Irish gang, but a whole bunch of the guys in that were not Irish. So it's, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't call it an Irish uh, bootlegging gang, but no doubt they were not Italian. There were other, other nationalities and other ethnicities for the most part. So he was constantly battling with these guys and there were murders back and forth where they killed some Capone people and then Capone killed uh, some of their people. And it was getting very dangerous for Capone right around 1927, 26, 27. Uh, not only that, Capone was becoming quite famous or infamous in Chicago. His young son was being teased at school about his dad's a gangster and so forth. And uh, Capone had to have bodyguards around him all the time. And so he started uh, looking for opportunities and he told the press, like, I'm going to get out of this business. I'm tired of it. Uh, and then he, uh, he talked about moving to Florida. Apparently, Capone made his intentions very clear to the people of Miami as soon as he arrived. Crime was not on his mind. He wanted to spend his cash and live a life of luxury and vacation with his family. He wasn't here to join up with or compete with the existing rum runner business. He was here with his family, his wife and his son to relax, apparently. Miami's police chief, a man named Leslie Quigg, which is one hell of a name, Leslie Quigg, apparently he approved Al Capone's presence saying, quote, you can stay as long as you behave yourself, end quote. Al Capone apparently retorted, quote, I'll stay as long as I'm treated like a human being, end quote. He was naturally controversial in Miami. Everyone knew who he was, and many were not happy to have someone known for crime, particularly violent crime, to be known as a resident of Miami. But Capone wasn't going anywhere. He bought the aforementioned waterside home that we talked about earlier and added a few structures to make it safer. His enemies, theoretically, couldn't hurt him here. Pretty interesting. He's paid $40,000 for it, you know, uh, but that was a lot of money then. And, and then he, but then he invested more than $100,000 to fix it up. There were watchtowers and tall gates. The master bedroom faced the canal. Quote, they installed one of the biggest private swimming pools anyone had seen, 60 feet long and 30 feet wide, end quote. They put up structures and drapes so that no matter where you were, on land or on sea, you couldn't peek into Capone's house. It was private, or as private as it could be. Everybody was at risk of taking a shot at him, you know, and he was kind of worried. He was worried about it for himself, but he was particularly worried about it with his wife and, and son. And so they started, this wife and son started living full time in Florida. Capone flashed his cash around town, not just renovating the house extensively, but also buying a speedboat and regularly visiting the racetracks in town, the dog tracks that we've discussed on the show in the past. Jonathan Ige suggests that Capone was languishing in all he had accomplished. He speculates, quote, Capone seemed pleased with all that his wealth had brought him. He had delivered his family a long way from the slums of Brooklyn. End quote. But it came with a price, as all things did in Al Capone's life. People were watching him, the newspapers in particular. Peers and underlings from Chicago would occasionally pay Al a visit down in Miami, where he and his wife May would host cocktail party. 
would host <laughs> I said cocktail parties I'm, I'm getting in a, a mobster voice they're hosting cocktail parties no they're hosting cocktail parties <laughs> Alan May would host cocktail parties and extravagant dinners for their guests uh, quote one day he might pack salami sandwiches and take them fishing the next he might organize an outing to a swank nightclub where he would foot the bill end quote Capone was living the high life in the Sunshine State. He liked it here. The newspapers were watching, keeping an eye on who was coming and who was going. According to Jeff Schumacher, there really is no evidence that Capone was committing any crimes while in Florida outside of ordering his men up in Chicago to do their work and exchanging money. It seems like the crimes were being done up in Chicago, but they were being ordered by Al down here in Florida, but he wasn't really extending his empire down here. That, that wasn't what he was here for. His crew up in Chicago was still working, keeping the business running and alive whenever Capone himself went up to Chicago it would make major news and the same was true for when he returned to Miami and he was constantly being harassed there were police surrounding his home he was being arrested on these sort of trumped up petty charges all the time and uh, there were he had been able to pay off some people enough to where they left him alone but there were always more uh, uh, the public opinion in the area was they didn't think Capone was going to be a positive influence for Miami. Not that there weren't other gangsters there, not that there weren't other bad people hanging around, but Capone was so infamous and so marked at that time, especially after the St. Valentine's Day massacre that he'd been linked to, that there was just constant harassment of Capone there. It didn't help, by the way, that Capone had a bit of a famous neighbor, the president of the United States at that time, Herbert Hoover. Hoover didn't live there, he didn't actually have a house, but he would stay for some time at the estate of his friend James Casey Penny, also known as J.C. Penny, as in J.C. Penny of the department stores. Hoover would take vacations on Biscayne Bay, on Belle Isle, just a few clicks away from Palm Island where Capone lived. According to Jonathan Igg's book, Hoover and Capone were both out of town the week before Valentine's Day. 1929, but both returned to Miami right before the holiday. Al Capone himself actually had a meeting with an assistant district attorney set for February 14th in Miami to discuss the murder of a former colleague, Frankie Yale. Talked about him earlier. Frankie Yale had been killed the previous July. It is believed that Al Capone ordered that hit. But little did that lawyer know, up in Chicago, a far more heinous murder was set for the exact same day as he had this meeting with Al Capone. It was Valentine's Day, 1929. I will let Jeff Schumacher tell this story because it is quite the tale. Capone and his, his bootlegging rivals, particularly the Northside Gang, had been going back and forth, back and forth with violent acts against each other since 1924. Even into 19... You know, 28. You know, there were supposedly these peace summits that had been held, and everybody was supposed to be getting along. But the the latest leader of the Northside Gang, George Bugs Moran, continued to be a pest, continued to be a problem in Capone's eyes. And so, in in late 1928, Capone gathers his associates together at a lodge in northern Wisconsin, not far from a compound that he had up there. And they put together a plan to kill Bugs Moran. The people that that Capone brought together were a little different from uh, the people that he'd used in other 
instances. These were not directly members of his gang. And there was a very specific purpose there. If Jack McGurn, one of his famous you know, gunners, had showed up to try to kill Bugs Moran, everybody would recognize him. It's like, well, where's Jack, where's Jack McGurn? I mean, we better look out. Right, so, Capone, it would just be immediately linking Capone to that instantaneously. The second they've, they've become so recognizable as characters in his web that the second you see them, you know that that, that that Capone was connected. So Capone developed a relationship with a group of criminals that are ostensibly from St. Louis. Uh, Capone decided, to, he called these guys his American boys. And the reason he called them their American boys is they were not Italian. They were, they were not really of his heritage at all. Uh, they were a variety of different backgrounds, but they were, you know, uh, uh, hardened killers and very good at what they did. Capone decides to to bring in these American boys, uh, led by a guy named Fred Killer Burke, and these individuals were going to going to uh, take care of Bugs Moran. So, uh, and the way they're going to do it is kind of interesting. In order to disguise themselves and to give give themselves access to to Moran and his team or his his uh, gang, they dressed up. Two of them dressed up as police officers, and you know if you're in Chicago in 1929, the, the Chicago police are pretty corrupt already, and they're you know when they walk in the door uh, for a, where there's a meeting of gangsters, you know they're probably going to want to just shake them down for some money. It wasn't going to be a a big deal, so. Bugs Moran and his team are scheduled to meet uh, in this uh, warehouse, this kind of place on the north side of Chicago. They're waiting for Bugs Moran to arrive before they hold their meeting. So there's seven guys in the room, in the building. Bugs Moran is not among them at this point. Capone has lookouts in other buildings around us, watching for people arriving at the building. One of the seven uh, guys in the building looks very much like Bugs Moran. And so they think that Bugs Moran has arrived. So they give the signal, okay, guys, go ahead and go in and uh, take care of business. So these two got men dressed up as police officers and what appear to be two other men who are not dressed up as police officers, but maybe look like detectives or something like that. They enter the North Clark Street building and it, it looks like it's going to be a typical shakedown. They tell these guys to get up against the wall, line up against the wall, and instead of shaking them down for money or giving them a hard time like police would, guys coming in the building brandish Tommy guns, two Tommy guns and a shotgun, and just start blasting away. They end up killing all seven men in the building. And there's a dog in the building. They do not hurt the dog, but you know he's just barking like crazy and he's obviously very upset about this. So that helps draw attention. So there are witnesses who see these Police, these quote-unquote police officers come out of the building, they get in the car, and they take off. Let's go back for a second and talk about Bugs Moran, because Moran, the story, as the story goes, Moran was walking toward the building when he saw these police officers go into the building, these supposed police officers. So Moran, being a wise criminal, decides he doesn't want any part of this, so he takes off, and he does not end up coming to the building. So it's really a matter of timing and mistaken identity that he ends up surviving the massacre. He ended up killing seven of his lieutenants, including you know three or four of the most hardened guys that he has. 
So from a Capone standpoint, it's a, a success, right? They, they've taken care of a, and wiped out a bunch of the uh, North Side gang, but uh, Bugs Moran did survive. Seven men dead at the order of Al Capone. The killers were never caught because one of them, Fred Burke, was arrested for another crime, not in Illinois. He had killed a police officer, which was a crime that drew a lot of attention to him. It really got the book thrown at him, so to speak. No one was ever prosecuted for the slaying of the Northside gang lieutenants on Valentine's Day, and Capone's greatest rival was now out of the way, or at least his lieutenants were. Capone had one hell of an alibi, as I mentioned. He was in Miami with the assistant district attorney, and not only that, but people were always watching Al Capone, and he knew it. They knew where he was going on a day-to-day basis, so everybody knew that Capone was in Miami. He had been seen on Valentine's Day. There's no way he could have been up in Chicago ordering that hit, and it wasn't his usual guys. It maybe wasn't him, even though now we know that it was. So it seemed like he had zero involvement, but it backfired. Even if there was no obvious proof, even if he had a good alibi, it was his rival's lieutenants that were killed, and in such a gruesome manner. Jeff tells me that the public obviously knew there was crime and murder happening in Chicago, but this was something else. This was seven people, basically execution style. This could not be taken lightly. You know, Al Capone becomes public enemy number one, not only in Chicago, but around the country. And it reaches the point where even the president of the United States, uh, Herbert Hoover, says to his federal law enforcement agencies, we need to get Capone. We need to put him in prison. And, and this, is a, this is a new thing for a federal government because at that time, they mostly had relied on local police agencies and state police, police agencies to deal with the mob. So here was a case where you know, Hoover, President Hoover said, you know what, we need to put together whatever we need to put together here, FBI, uh, Treasury Department, whoever it is, we need to, we need to get, uh, get Capone. And um, so it was really a big mistake if you, in hindsight for Capone, because what it did is it turned the world uh, against him at a time when he was actually quite popular. He was kind of the Robin Hood character in Chicago. You know, he, he handed out a lot of cash to people. Uh, you know, he held these press conferences and he was this really jovial guy with this big smile. All I'm doing is providing what people want, he would say. You know, uh, why are everybody picking on me kind of thing? Well, after the St. Valentine's Day massacre, people were like, nah, I think, I think we're done with Al Capone. It's strange to say it like this, but the killing of those men was kind of bad publicity for Al Capone. It was a bad move on his part. It tarnished his interesting bad guy persona entirely. No longer was he the charming rogue. Now he was a, a murderer, like a serious slaughterer. Like it was, it was bad for his public perception. The greater mob syndicate, other leaders from around the country, met with Al Capone in Atlantic City and made an agreement on how to settle the tensions, to lower the heat, so to speak. He needed to lay low for a while. You know, no more press conferences. And also, you didn't want to get him killed because it was obviously going to be retaliatory efforts. Well, the solution was that Capone would would rest up in prison. And the way this was orchestrated was he uh, went to Philadelphia. And after the Atlantic City Conference, he's traveling presumably back to Chicago. And he stops in Philadelphia. And there's a layover there on the train 
So he, he and his uh, uh, Frankie Rio, his bodyguard, uh, take in a movie. They go to the movie. When they come out of the movie, they're stopped by these two detectives uh, who frisk them and, and take away their handguns that they have, which are not licensed. They're not allowed to carry them. So they're arrested on gun charges. And they go down to the, you know, they go to jail. They're held. The next day, there's a hearing. And they agree to plead guilty to these gun charges, at which point the judge, apparently not in on the whole the whole plan, uh, uh, gives them a fully one year in prison as a sentence. I think and Capone was probably thinking, oh, you know, 60 days, you know, maybe you know, good behavior. He'd be out in 30. Well, yeah, the judge gave him one year and Capone was not too pleased about this. Capone spent 10 months in prison, enough time for things to settle down, at least a little bit. Chicago was calm, or at least calmer. But the federal government hadn't had their fill of punishment for Al Capone. 10 months for Capone was little for a man they knew had been involved in major crimes for a decade. They knew they couldn't really get him on the more dangerous stuff, but they could get him on tax evasion. And when he got out of prison, he faced uh, uh, pretty serious charges of tax evasion, which ultimately, uh, in 1931, he was convicted, and then they threw the book at him again. <laughs> Normally, people who are uh, guilty of tax evasion at that time might get a year, two years, three years, maybe at the most. They gave Capone 11 years. And not only that, uh, they sent him to Alcatraz, which was, you know, the, the most, uh, you know, uh, heavily uh, secure prison in America, it was not fun. It was it was not you know a country club prison by any means, even though it was like a white collar kind of crime that Capone committed. So you know Capone ended up uh, the whole the whole St. Valentine's Day massacre, you know so to speak, triggered uh, a whole bad episode for him where he served time in Philadelphia and then he served time in Alcatraz. The events of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre also showed people that Prohibition was no good. It was simply promoting more mob violence. The end of Prohibition followed soon, in 1933, a year before Al Capone went to Alcatraz. All this time, as Capone served the sentence for his crimes, including on Alcatraz, all the way in California, his family continued to live in Florida. Al's brother Ralph was trying to keep the business afloat, all while Al's wife and son continued to live in his Miami mansion. Al would write letters to his son, to his family. According to Jeff, Al's family meant the world to him, and this distance between himself and his kid and his wife was difficult on all of them. When the time came for his release, Capone wanted just one thing, to be back with his family in Florida. Yeah, when, when uh, uh, Capone was released from prison, 1939, I believe, he um, goes back to Florida and essentially retires uh, from, from crime. And, and there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, the, the first one is that he'd been gone so long that, you know, it was really that other people had taken control of the Chicago outfit and they were much better equipped to run it at that time. There was increasingly sophisticated crimes they were involved in. Uh, a lot of water under the bridge since Capone had gone to prison. It wasn't really realistic that Al was going to jump back into Chicago and be the boss. That's the first thing. But the second thing was Capone was, had uh, syphilis. He had had syphilis since the 20s, and it was untreated. 
and it has started going to his brain. And there's a name for that uh, that I'm forgetting, but basically it started affecting his brain. And uh, we've seen this, this has happened, you know, the number of prominent individuals in history. And Capone was not doing well in, in Alcatraz. He was, he, some people said that he really had the mindset of like a child uh, when he got out of prison. I think that might be a little bit of an exaggeration, or it might be that there were times when he was like that, and there were other times when he was he was not like that. But the gist of it is, he really wasn't capable of running a criminal organization anymore, and so he lived a very a relatively quiet life at the uh, Palm Island estate until he died in 1947. And uh, he was a grandfather uh, to you know he was a father and a grandfather. He was a doting grandfather. He he loved his his grandchildren and he you know held parties and he did invite sometimes people from from chicago down to visit but for the most part he was uh you know not involved in in crime anymore at all so uh, this is maybe a a, a minimization of it or a, i can't find the right word but he died of an illness as an old man at his home in florida as a grandfather and family man, is, is yes, what you're he, saying? Yep, he was a little younger than a lot of a lot of people uh, who who die of old age. But you know, uh, Capone uh, definitely just kind of faded into the uh, you know faded into the into the background. And uh, he like you know a lot of people in Florida, right? They retire there, and that's what he did. And, and literally, uh, he was no longer involved uh, in uh, the Chicago mob at that point. You know, I've been doing this show long enough to know to not make assumptions about history. We learn so much about history from movies and, and books, the way that things go. And I think that the 1920s, especially these mobsters, you know, think of Bonnie and Clyde and think of Al Capone. The way that we think of them has been so muddled by the stories that are told to us. And it's not an accurate representation of what really happened. It wasn't all that cinematic. Al Capone was a murderer, a man who ordered the deaths of many, many individuals. He was the most famous American mobster. He maybe should have had a cinematic ending, that's what the movies tell us, but many of the mobsters of his era died of old age. You'd think they died in, quote-unquote, a hail of gunfire, but they didn't. Al Capone died of an illness. I say old age. Al Capone was 40 eight when he died that's that's hardly old age he was only 48 years old but he died of an illness he didn't die of mob violence he didn't die of retaliation he didn't die in prison he died in his home in 1947 having retired from a life of being the scourge of the american people whatever the man did in his life whatever heinous crimes he committed in his 48 years on this planet, it's very interesting to me that at the end of his life, Al Capone got to seek some peace along the shores of Florida.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. Like the previous episode of this show, this story has a lot of connections to Florida history. We've talked about rum running last year with our friend Laura Albritton. We've talked about dog racing and how it has come to an end in Florida after a century of work. You should listen to that episode as well. There are so many connections to the various eras of American history and Florida history in this story. So go ahead and give those episodes a listen. The end of Greyhound Racing and the Rum Runners of Florida. Two great episodes that tie directly into this story. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, there is a very easy way to leave a five-star review. You don't even have to write any words. Just hit the five stars and submit. But now Spotify has that feature as well. If you listen to the show on Spotify, all you have to do is go to the main show page, give the show five stars, and it will be added to the tally on the top. It allows the show to become more visible for people who don't know about this show, and it means a lot to me when you leave a review and tell me what you like. If you want to do that as well, you can reach me via my email, wfmpod at gmail.com. Tell me what you like about the show. Tell me what you want to hear. The 10th season is coming up this summer, and I've got some really exciting stories, but I'm not done. I want to know what you want to hear. Tell me what you want to hear from this show, and I promise I'll get to it. Truly, I want to hear what you want to hear. And if you are enjoying the show, I'm trying to do more social media content, trying to make more reels and and things of the things that I discover on this show. So you can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at WFM Pod. If you see those things, if you know of somebody who would like the show, please send it to them. I, I truly look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Jeff Schumacher and the entire staff of the Mob Museum. They have a lot going on at the Mob Museum right now, and Jeff and his crew took time out of their day to arrange this interview so that we could chat over Zoom about Al Capone. I cannot thank them enough. I know Las Vegas is a bit of a trip, but I also know that we have some listeners on that side of the country. So if you are anywhere near Las Vegas, go pay the Mob Museum a visit. I am seriously looking forward to paying them a visit and saying hi to Jeff face-to-face one day very soon because... That sounds like an amazing museum to visit. So thank you to Jeff Schumacher and the Mob Museum. All right, next week, next Monday, we're talking about one of my favorite authors, certainly my favorite Florida author, the unparalleled Zora Neale Hurston. Specifically, we're going to talk about her book, Mules and Men. It is one of the most important books I've ever read. It's a collection of folk stories, but I want to tell you about the unique place that Zora holds in Florida's history because she was an anthropologist. She was trying to catalog the lives of the people around her, not just in her writing, but in in literal anthropological work. And it's an amazing thing to see how that research and those discoveries that she did carry on to today. So we're going to talk about that in next week's episode. I am very excited to chat about the unbelievable work of Zora Neale Hurston. So I will see you next Monday for that. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water. Have a wonderful Valentine's Day. I'm very grateful for all of you. See you next Monday.